In our own Christian faith, we we know of martyrs, and we read of their stories that have taken place over the centuries. As Americans, we think of those who have have died for us. But the, the death of Jesus Christ for Christians is more than a moving story. These events make up the essential ingredient of our faith. Of course, what's going to be confessed next week also as well. But our hope of redemption, our hope of glory to come, rests completely on this statement here, that Jesus suffered, died, and was buried. So let's consider, first of all, the uh, that part about the, the oddity of historical events. Why is it necessary to single out the his, historicity of Jesus dying on a cross? Okay. Well, you know, when we were going through the creed, it struck me odd in particular that we specify that it was under Pontius Pilate that Jesus suffered that he was crucified, and, and so on. Now, we know that Pilate was the procurator. He's the one who tried Jesus, as we just listened to in the scripture passage. He's the one who authorized the beatings, authorized the crucifixion. He's the one who granted permission to Joseph of Arimathea to bury Jesus. But you think about it for a moment. What does it matter who the procurator was? And for that matter, why not mention, if you're going to mention folks in here, why not mention the religious leaders who actually orchestrated the whole process? They're the ones who who arrested him. They had already tried him. They had pronounced him guilty. The only reason they're turning Jesus over to Pilate is that they don't have the authority to execute him. I mean, why pick on Pontius Pilate? Well, here's what happens when... Because Pilate is mentioned. Naming Pilate places Jesus and his death in a specific time and location in history. Because Pilate was a Roman authority, we can rely and we can turn to sources outside of Scripture that identify the the time and the place. We know that Pilate served in Palestine from 26 to 37 A.D., The Roman historian Tacitus specifically states that Jesus was executed under the orders of Pilate. So the Apostles' Creed here is establishing this, that the Christian faith rests on historical fact. See, ours is not a a spiritualized religion. It's not based on mythological stories you know, that you then kind of give interpretation to, to give life meaning. We do not look to Jesus and the stories about him in the same way that we, that we look at the stories of the, the Greek and the, and the Roman myths and their gods and goddesses. Now, the stories of Jesus are historical events, beginning from his birth to his 30-odd years of, of life and his ministry, until we get to his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. So if these events did not occur 
in a historical time and location, then our religion collapses completely. If Jesus did not suffer and die under Pontius Pilate sometime between 26 and 37 A.D., then the gospel, which means good news, is in reality is fake news. That's the importance of understanding the historicity of that Jesus suffered, died, and was buried. Now, what about the, what about the significance of these events? Now, before I go on to, to explain exactly what they mean, I want to take time to note how important it was to Jesus himself to suffer and to die. Listen to his own statements. His first one is from Mark 8:31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. Then in Luke 12:50. I have a baptism to be baptized with. And how great is my distress until it is accomplished. And he's speaking of the baptism of his death. Or again in Luke 13, 33. I must go on my way today and tomorrow and the day following. For it cannot be that a prophet should perish away from Jerusalem. See, that he knows where he's going. He knows the purpose for which he's going. Or in John 3, 14 to 15, as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in him may have eternal life. He knows how that death will be, that he will be lifted up upon a cross. So Jesus did not die because his enemies got the upper hand. He did not make a mistake in choosing Judas to be a disciple. He walked to Jerusalem with full knowledge of his destiny. Really, not merely with full knowledge, but with the anticipation that his death was the reason for his birth. Jesus came for the purpose of dying upon the cross. Again, listen to him. He's speaking to his disciples, and now the resurrection has occurred. And, and the disciples, they, they don't know who they're really talking to at this moment. They, they are filled with despair. And he turns to two of them and he says, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things. Or again, when he's, he now has all the disciples with him. This is in Luke 24. And he says, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer. See, look back to us, the Old Testament. Look back to Moses. Look back to the Psalms. Look back to the prophets. And you will see in those that they are pointing 
to me, to my suffering, and to my death. So Jesus makes clear that his death was essential to his mission. He must suffer. He must die. And now the question for us is why? What was at stake? Well, Jesus gives the answer. And he gave the answer just a few verses after the ones uh, that were read earlier in the service in Mark uh, 10. The ones in which he said he would be killed in Jerusalem. After he says that, there's this, it's just so sad, it'd be a humorous discussion between Jesus and the brothers John and James. They come up to him and they, they say, look, we want the top two spots in your kingdom when you're ready to set it up. And Jesus asked them this question. He says, are you, are you able to drink the cup that I drink? Or to be baptized with the baptism that I am baptized? And they just brazenly, and they're so cluelessly, and they say, well, yeah, of course we can do that. Not realizing that the cup and baptism that Jesus referred to is his suffering and his crucifixion. And he then gives them a lesson about humility. How in his kingdom, the great must serve. And then he uses himself as an example. And here's, here's what I want you to know. He says, For even a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Now, by that term ransom, Jesus was referring, disciples would have understood this, to the practice that was prescribed in the law of Moses for redeeming That is, for for paying for the life of a person who was marked for death. And there were limits for who could be redeemed, such as murderers. There were limits to to a ransom price. And the psalmist in Psalm 49, he he reflects on this. Listen to him. He's he's thinking about the, the wicked that he sees around about him. And he says, why should I fear in times of trouble? When the iniquity of those who cheat me surrounds me, those who trust in their wealth and boast of the abundance of their riches, truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice that he should live on forever and never see the pit. And so the psalmist notes that He's reflecting this, however rich the wicked might be, that money is going to do them no good to ransom their lives before their God. Everyone's going to die, no matter how rich they may be, and they will then appear before their judge. And then he he makes an exception for himself. He says, but God will ransom my soul from the power of Sheol, from, from death. For he will receive me. And the psalmist does not explain why God should ransom him. But he does hit on here who it is the only one who can pay such a ransom price. And that can only be God. Now I think this is one of those times in which a psalmist or a prophet, they're, they're speaking truth. And yet they likely do not even grasp the full truth of what they are saying. 
God, God alone can ransom a person's soul so that they do escape the condemnation that they deserve. But, but then how does God do it? Does God just simply kind of wave his hand over our sins and he says, well, just, just be gone, sins. Or he says, hey, be forgiven. We'll just let bygones be bygones. Well, we know that he prescribed a sacrificial system to Moses to address our sins. We know that the system had some kind of, kind of, some kind of surface effect. But the writer of Hebrews makes very clear that all of these sacrifices, all of it, what they really did was to serve as reminders that we are sinners. As he says in Hebrews 10.4, it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. The sacrificial system, in other words, could not ransom a man's soul. And in the end, what it really served its purpose was to be a teacher, an instructor. And it taught two things. One, it taught that there was nothing that a person could do to ransom their own soul, to somehow make amends for one's own sins. And it also taught that God could not merely overlook or forgive sin without a ransom being made. See, the whole point of, of this, the sacrificial system, is saying that justice, God's justice, has to be served. God is holy. That's the mantra of the sacrificial system of the, of the law. And one cannot be holy and just excuse sin. So what then? Where is our hope? Well, the sacrificial system did not provide the answer, but it did point to the answer. A perfect sacrifice must be made. And that perfect sacrifice could only be provided by God. Jesus is saying he's that sacrifice. John the Baptist testified of him. When he saw him, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. And Jesus could do this because he was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. Because of that, he could come into this world without sin and so be the perfect sacrifice. And because he was God's only Son, our Lord, he had the power to make such a ransom payment. And so it is for this reason that Jesus came into the world, that he suffered under Pontius Pilate, that he was crucified upon the cross. It is to this that we confess in the Apostles' Creed. Now we also confess to Jesus being buried. And we might ask, what is the significance of that? It's, it's that Jesus Christ is crucified that matters. What does the burial add to the story? Well, for one thing, it provides what you might call the, the prelude or the, the setting for the resurrection. I mean, isn't it a powerful image? The stone being rolled away that had sealed his body. And burial also does something else. It adds finality to Jesus' life. 
It tells us that Jesus did not faint on the cross. He did not appear to die. Jesus died. And his death was healed by a stone that was rolled over his grave. The story of Jesus came to an end. Or as as we confess, and we'll be looking at next week, it will seem to have come to an end. So what is the lesson of this portion of the creed? It's actually rather simple. When we are confessing this in the Apostles' Creed, we're confessing that our hope for salvation rests solely in the work of Jesus Christ, in his work in which he is ransoming our guilty souls through his death, On the cross. Is that your hope? Is that your only hope? Now, I grew up in the South, in South Carolina, in a small town. Not like a lot of you, I I was raised in the proper church, Presbyterian. I was baptized as an infant. I was raised in the church. And if you had asked me if I were saved, I would have responded, well, I hope so. I believe in Jesus and I, I do my best to live a good life that I hope will make up for my sins. And that very statement revealed that I understood nothing of the significance of Christ crucified. I mean, how else could I have added an and? There is no and. I am saved by the ransom payment of Jesus on the cross, or I am not ransomed at all. And to add an an and of my own efforts, and it's an insult to my Savior. It is the cross alone, or nothing at all, in which to place my hope. And so it was with the Apostle Paul. Paul writes in Galatians 6.14, For be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, there was a church he planted, a church in Corinth. And after he planted that church and he had left, the church uh, would later on try to boast. Not in the cross, but in their own spiritual gifts and their their so-called wisdom. They thought they had reached a higher plane. They kind of moved beyond that quaint story of the cross. And so Paul would write to them, as in 1 Corinthians 1, 18 to 25, he would write these words. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. And the discernment of the discerning, I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly of what we preach. To save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. 
But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. So what is the cross to you? Is it a stumbling block? Is it falling? Or is it broken into your mind, broken into your heart, that here is the power and the wisdom of God that reveals reveals the weakness of our own efforts to try to prove ourselves worthy of being accepted by God. That reveals the folly of our attempts to be wise enough, to be knowledgeable enough to, to take care of ourselves. The cross is a test for you that reveals where you stand with God. He sent his son, his only son, to die for you. There's no other religion. There's no other system of thought that approaches that wondrous statement. Now, you might ponder how to explain this mystery of what takes place on the cross. I mean, you might, you might ask, how, how is it that a man dying on a cross 2,000 years ago in, in Palestine under some guy named Pontius Pilate how can that affect my life now? Well, you're actually pondering the wrong question. The real question. How is it that God the Father would send God the Son to pay your ransom for your sins? Look at the cross. There you see the holy God who cannot abide sin, who must turn away When his son calls out to him, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Look at the cross. And there you see immeasurable love and mercy. The love and mercy of God the Father for you who sent his son to bear such suffering for you. To ransom you. There you see the love and mercy of God the Son who gladly bore suffering to ransom you. From where does such love and mercy come? John tells us in 1 John 4.10, he says, This is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation, that is, to be the ransom for our sins. And what does God call you to do? simply to come to him, to believe him, call upon the name of Jesus, and you will be saved. Look to the cross. We give you praise, our God, for the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you for this love, this mercy we cannot understand. I would cause you to send your son to die for your enemies. How wondrous this is. Keep our eyes ever upon the cross in this life. May it be that which we treasure most of all in this world and in our lives. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.